Welcome to the Orion Podcast, hosted by Jessa and Laurel of A Stellar Co., a podcast that connects you with the knowledge and resources you need to drive a more conscious form of capitalism. Orion starts now. Hey, Jessa. We're a guest today. We have Ian and Kirsten from Galley. Uh, how did we meet them? Well, we actually met a kind of circuitous route, and I was introduced to one of your colleagues, Chris, at a party like right before COVID. Like I think it was like the Wednesday before everything shut down, and we had this great conversation about galley and the work you guys were doing and about regenerative agriculture and i'm like oh my gosh you have to meet my partner laurel come on the podcast and then covid hit and it's like whoa oh i just heard myself that was so weird i was trying to send the link to someone and i was like what's happening (laughs) anyway and so you know we thought each other's radars because other things are going on obviously and then in the meantime um, this local network that's starting up next San Diego focused on regenerative businesses. Uh, Kirsten's on the board, the committee of that, and we were both invited to that by uh, uh, mutual connection, Isabel. And I saw her name and where she was with Galley, and I'm like, oh my gosh, Chris. And so I emailed Kirsten, sorry, this is kind of long, but I emailed Kirsten, I was like, hey, I met this guy, I think he works with you. And then literally, I think the same day, Chris messaged me on LinkedIn, be like, hey, we kind of lost touch, COVID hit. I was like, oh my gosh, like the stars of the line, the timing is right, it is now. And so we reconnected and uh, anyway, more to that, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> it was a starry connection. Thanks for joining yeah. us. Absolutely, our pleasure. Yes. And then we heard it. So this is, uh, full disclosure, our first time meeting Ian and we've spoken with Kirsten and Chris quite a bit and we always hear about Ian, Ian, this elusive Ian. So uh, no pressure, but uh, we have high expectations. <laughs> now, now that you're on the spot, um, Ian, you're the founder of Galley and the reason you know that we're all we're able to be connected. And so can you give us um, some background on how, I guess, what brought you to Galley and why you eventually started it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I got to give credit where credit is due. I got brought into Galley as an opportunity um, from my brother-in-law and my co-founder, Benji Koltai. So we are actually kind of founding a family-run business in the technology space, and uh, it's a lot of fun. So uh, that said, Benji uh, had uh, the idea for this product from his previous role at a company in San Francisco called Sprig. He shared it with me, uh, and I was like, yep, I'm ready to drop everything I'm doing in life and come help you build this. And uh, we've been at it now for a few years and have brought on incredible team members like Kirsten, who is like, like, dead, like very early on. She's, she's been with us for this wild ride and uh, kind of just showed up at the office one day and it was like, all right, we just can never let her go. So um, I'll let her share her story. But uh, and we can get more into Genesis uh, as we go. But uh, I was fortunate enough to be invited into this project by Benji. And then when I understood what it is that he wanted to build and where I could provide value, it was just a no brainer. And, and now we're, we're trying to transform the way the world makes food. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> with that, yeah. <laughs> Kirsten, Boom. tell us about your entry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I moved to San Diego in like spring 2018, um, and I had just moved from England and barely knew anyone in in San Diego except for my now husband. Um, and yeah, I started out here working remotely for a company back east, but was kind of looking for opportunities here. Um, the first weekend that my parents came to visit me in, in San Diego, and I'm from the East Coast, um, that was the weekend that that Galley had its first big article published in the San Diego Tribune. So they caught, my parents actually caught that article, and I had just come from England where I was working on a PhD, uh, thinking about sustainable business model innovation in the context of, of food tech ventures, sustainable food tech ventures, and uh, they were like, Kirsten, this is this looks like it's right up your alley. So uh, yeah, from that article, I, I think I pinged uh, Ian and Benji on LinkedIn, and Yep, like like Ian said, I just showed up at the office and uh, we started to think about ways to work together. 
I forgot how much I owe your parents a, a debt of gratitude for them promoting you into the org. <laughs> <laughs> Best recruiters ever. Oh, that's it's really, really funny. Cool. Like the first time they came to visit in San Diego, the first big article from Galley. So yeah, it was feeling pretty lucky. Yeah. Yes, it was meant to be. It was very starry. Um, I feel like that's a really good note to entrepreneurs. If they're feeling drawn to something, like lean into it, reach out, connect. Because uh, if you get in your own way and you don't do it, then you're going to miss the Ian and miss the Benji and miss the opportunity. So like, go for it. Use LinkedIn. Use the tools that you have to connect with people. That's, that's great. And so you mentioned you saw the article and you, you were pursuing your PhD in, in sustainability and specifically the food industry. So how does Galley, what's Galley's role in society and how does it align with uh, that vision, Kirsten, that you had for sustainability in the food industry? Yeah, well, uh, what I read there in this article was about a back of house uh, system that could really streamline operations, make things more efficient. Um, and there's a little exercise that I did during my PhD where I kind of pitched a startup idea and um, it was very much aligned with that, the idea of, you know, big data, getting all of this information in one place, um, getting orders ahead of time so you could very accurately plan, right? Order, order all the ingredients, that sort of thing, and you're not um, overproducing. So when I read that article, uh, I saw a lot of that in the galley product that they were building. Um, and yeah, immediately I thought to, to the sort of similar idea I had had around a system that could help to prevent food waste. Um, and, you know, also when you've got all of this data there, you can really clearly communicate to your customers about what's in the product and everything. And the customers being consumers, the end consumer which I think is, is key now. Everyone's, everyone's looking at nutrition labels. Uh, allergens are a big thing. Absolutely. And Ian, you said you were invited to this. So aside from the financials, what was so inviting? Uh, the approach, I mean, and the vision. I, I don't think we've, and I would say I've, we helped kind of compound this vision together. Benji came with the kind of the, the original idea for the product and then we just kind of used it to, to serve as kind of a springboard into, into kind of the vision that we're carrying for the company today. Um, and, and that was just to build, uh, just looking at the global, uh, you know, the global food supply chain and understanding that we believe that there's so much inefficiency in that from the time that farmers plant the seed to the time that, uh, you know, a finished product ends up on someone's plate. And for us, we saw an entry point into increasing the efficiency in this global supply chain as the recipe of, of starting with the recipe that any food organization uses to convert a raw good into a finished product. And we looked at, you know, what this is the data, this is the structure in which food service information and, and IP has been communicated uh, through the centuries. And so let's start there and let's look at the recipe and let's unlock the power of the recipe as, as it pertains to unlocking greater levels of efficiency within the, the food production value chain. So um, when it was kind of that concept kind of all started to click, like we are going to be bottom up recipe focused and this is going to be kind of the vehicle for, for the food service data that we're capturing and then leveraging. Um, it made a lot of sense to me because that's how culinarians have interacted with food service data since almost the beginning of, of restaurants is, is, is through this recipe structure. So I knew there would be this like kind of organic uh, resonance with with the market with the operators that are going to use this. And then <clears throat> Benji really leaned into me um, to focus on just the user experience and 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 making a really pleasurable, um, you know, interactive experience for these operators to engage with. And when I saw those two things really just not existing in the market today. I was dumbfounded. I was like, why is there not a solution that does this in this way? And that is actually pleasurable and enjoyable to use. And, um, and when we thoroughly understood that nothing even came close to like actual the functional product we wanted to build and that really, you know, it was very rare to find anyone with the level of vision that we had for transforming the entire industry, not just restaurants or catering or contract food service, but really looking at like, isn't there a framework for making food at scale that exists out there? And how do we, how do we organize and, and strategically tap into that framework in order to unlock more efficiency? Um, and so that's, that's what got me excited about it. 
Yeah. That, I mean, yes. It's funny when you, when you get brought into a business opportunity and you're like, how does this not already exist? Because uh, it's so obvious and so clear to me that there's a need here and I'm going to solve this problem. So it's a beautiful little gift from the universe. So congratulations to you for seeing it for what it is and going after it. In, in your vision, how is the world improved by this? So like, let's say everyone's got galley. What is the, what is the world look like? Oh man, uh, <laughs> we don't have enough time to go into that. But uh, at a high level, I mean, let, let's start at two, two high level premises here is that there should be ROI for the, for the food business. There, the, you only use the software tool. You only use tools and technology in order to achieve a result. We are, we are, you know, not fantastical in our thinking to believe that we need to actually provide monetary, you know, benefits to food businesses in order to incentivize the usage of this product. So a, it's got to work and it's got to help with their daily workflows and it's got to provide a real meaningful return on investment or a don't even start like that. That's your entry point into a greater problem set that you can start to, to solve with, with the data set and with the technology we have. The two things that we look at as like the emergent benefits of building really great uh, and, and really interactive software is how do we how do we uh, affect global sustainability in, in the form of like food waste mitigation first and foremost so we have a thesis that galley is one of the only solutions that actually stop food waste before it starts because of our, our highly connected data model and our ability to look into your future demand and, and what you need to make in the future and make sure that that's extremely accurate uh, so as Kirsten mentioned, you're not overproducing and, and wasting either finished products or ingredients that spoil in your walk-in. Uh, and then, and then the second is that if you're, if you're working and leveraging, if you're leveraging technology uh, uh, like Galley and working in a highly organized and systematic and efficient system that you should actually feel or gain some quality of life improvements as, as a person, as an employee or as a staff or team member that works in a food service environment with, with technology like this, because there's just so much chaos in producing food given the nature of the industry and uh, you know the high turnover the organic nature of ingredients the hours like there's all of these factors that just make it for one of the most you know low margin high stress you know jobs on earth and at the end of the day we believe that we can positively affect change in the back of the house for these these food service workers so we're actually measuring quality of life through stress surveys pre and post galley implementation in order to to be able to to track that because you, you can't you can't change what you don't measure we, we believe that and so we want to measure the holistic benefits that we're providing our customers both from a, a sustainability impact perspective and then a, a quality of life perspective on top of just getting the jobs done that need to be done in the kitchen and more efficiently right and is there you're referring to but i had heard that you guys were a part of a case study or that you're being featured in a case study for some of these practices i don't know is that what you're referring to and if so is that something I don't know if you can that, talk about it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that was the entry point to kind of some greater thinking around this area. And we owe a debt of gratitude to a colleague of ours, uh, Emily uh, Aguirre, who's a, a Harvard Business School researcher who is uh, writing her dissertation on uh, a group of companies, uh, Galley included, that um, pursues uh, purpose, uh, profitability and purpose. Um, so very, very grateful to be partnered with her. And then through that work of kind of going through her uh, research process, we just realized that she would be a great resource to lock arms with. And she and Kirsten actually drive the uh, kind of the quality of life uh, uh, measurement uh, and, and, and um, stress survey uh, implementation and management. So that's that's Kirsten's baby over there with Emily. Uh, and they've, they've done a, a great job uh, so far. Yeah, and it is, uh, it, it's so cool to see the, the results come in, um, the survey results. And uh, we've got this meeting with our team uh, that we do every six weeks. It's called All Hands, uh, company-wide meeting. And um, at our upcoming All Hands, one of our plans is to, to read off, you know, several of the quotes that have come out of these stress surveys because it's just so cool to see, you know, when someone says, yes, my stress levels have gone down and then uh, you know, they do write two or three lines in response to, well, how has Galley impacted those stress levels? It's really, really cool to see. And across the whole org, you, I mean, I think what's so cool is the diversity too. You're seeing like the business owner, the manager, the line cook, you know, you're seeing all these different people groups saying like, oh, there's, there's a tool for me. It works and it's, it's helping improve my quality of life. So yeah, super, 
we we didn't know. You know, you got to put it out there to measure it. And so far, we've gotten only positive responses. So some some yeah. working. Yeah, something is working. And you know, my family's in the restaurant uh, business as well, and it's uh, we have like the best location you could ever think of, like waterfront Santa Barbara, Love and it. it's still extremely stressful. It is the highest stressor for uh, my sister and her husband. And so from a business owner's perspective, can you give a little more detail about how Galley lowers the stress for a business owner? Like, let's just use my sister for an example. Waterfront, Santa Barbara location, sushi, meat. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. How do you achieve a bigger ROI for that business? Because you know, not knowing what systems they have in place, but like, let's say for example, um, like does Galley provide metrics about how much the food costs and then what recipes you can create and how much that recipe will cost? Does it get down to that level of detail? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So the, you know, the stake in the sand that we're driving towards is essentially automated purchasing for the food service industry. So the question of how much of what to buy when is one of the hardest questions to answer in food service today. And it's what leads to a ton of wastage, both in labor and, and food as well. So uh, when it's not done accurately. And so it's also like a, a multi-hundred variable equation when you really look at it and dissect it. And so that sort of complexity is, is, in my opinion, always better suited for a computer. So that's what we're doing is we're asking a computer to run an algorithm to optimize purchasing uh, and, and to take that burden on. So to, to answer your question directly, the first and foremost is, as a food business, do you understand your food costs? Like, do you granular to a granular notion, do you understand how much you're spending and what you should be charging in order to be profitable on your menu offering? And that might sound simple, but it's literally something that 80% of the industry doesn't do. Um, you know, there's statistics floating out there that is like 80% of the food service industry hasn't costed their, their menu offering in the last three years. We even within our own, you know, customer research, we find it to even be higher. Like I would push it at tw upwards at 90%, um, you know? And so it's one of the only industries on earth that they're, you know, some of the time selling a product that they don't even understand how much it costs. Um, what and are they doing? So just to interrupt, like, what are they doing? Are they using like scratch paper? A, a lot like of times, a lot of times, there's not there's not systems in place. I mean, a lot of these culinarians just have this like muscle memory of of what you know and gut intuition around what should be done. There's also a system of uh, called par based purchasing, which is essentially I ordered 10, 10 cases of chicken last week. I'm going to order ten cases of chicken this week, plus or minus one or two, based on you know what the weather's doing, what I think is going to happen with events, you know, all of these different variables that it takes someone. Like only, food service operations that are successful are only successful if they're not leveraging this type of technology because someone really, really great is standing in the background being like, I understand all these variables and, and, and I have some intuition or some training or some knowledge that can help drive the system. But that's that's on, that's very rare, you know, in these days that you would have that that type of high capacity, you know, executive or, or, or culinarian there at the organization being able to, to, to do that for you. So um, so technology and systems get to kind of stand in the place for that. So first and foremost, food costing, do you understand your offering? And then are you thinking about like menu engineering and optimization? Are, do you have the right blend of items? Do you have the right, you know, loss leader to attract traffic? And then do you make up for that in other places? So looking at your menu offering holistically, and then now in this day and age, it's all about how do you get this food to the end consumer? I mean, you're, you know, that beautiful view, uh, you know, looking over, you know, Santa Barbara is worth a lot less today than it was, you know, uh, a few months ago, because we can't all access that, that beautiful amenity. And so now now it's about understanding, you know, how is your food going to, how is it going to travel uh, over the last mile? And then, and then how are you going to distribute it to get it to be, you know, a last mile deliverable good? And so uh, really looking at distribution there and how you bring on new revenue centers, you know, like takeout or, or delivery or, and so on and so forth. So, but again, that comes back mm -hmm. from understanding at your core, what is your offering? How much does it cost? And then how do I optimize it for, for being, you know, multi-channel? Yeah, thank you for the time to walk through that because I, I say I'm in the restaurant industry, but I'm not, I don't know. I just assumed like they're just coming up with the menu that they feel and they like. And I assumed that all these systems existed, but it looks like they don't. And so you're well, really 
a lot of them do and they're just disconnected they're just all floating ah. around and it takes digital duct tape i mean there's almost every type of technology in the space you can imagine it's just half of it is unusable and half of it doesn't talk to each other so it's it's really hard to actually leverage you know some core data in order to like populate all of those systems or to leverage the data from these other systems so that's what galley is doing is serving as the source of truth or the system of record for the food service industry or that's our vision anyway is to be the central place where recipes and and menus are stored and then you can access that data to do lots of things in the short term it's your daily workflows of inventory management production management and purchasing but you know external or these larger you know outsource activities are can it kind of leverage this data to more readily get on a delivery platform can i leverage this data to display my menu you know in the in the front of house can i leverage this data in order to propagate a pos system overnight and not take four months you know all sorts of these other technologies rely on this core data and there's just no there's no great system of record or source of truth for that. And so food operators, every time they try and bring on some new little piece of technology, they're starting from scratch. So like, okay, I've got to put my recipes or my menus or my ingredients in this piece of technology. I've got to do some other combination over here. This isn't talking to this. And, and you know, no, no wonder you're upside down and backwards at the end of the day. And you've got, and on top of it, you throw delivery on, you've got 30, you know, iPads sitting in your front trying to manage, you know, all of these direct order. It's just, there's a lot of reasons that it's chaotic. <laughs> yeah. That's for my, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to add from my experience working. Um, so the, my first year or so at Galley was working in, in customer success. So working directly with the customer to implement the system and everything. And yeah, I, I really did learn then that it, it's been difficult for operators to keep their recipes costed, you know, up to date and everything. Because, yeah, one thing we didn't really talk about here is how they've been cobbling together like spreadsheets upon spreadsheets, and they're not really connected. So if they update the ingredient cost in one place, they're maybe not drawing on that cell. Um, but the way that Galley works is, you know, you've got all of this data linked up in the right way. So when your price does increase or, or decrease, you can go and update that in one place propagates throughout the entire system. Um, and that has really been an aha moment for, for customers. Like, oh, it, it can be this easy to keep our, our recipe costs up to date. Yeah, and I was going to ask, I mean, I feel like it's one of those things when you, you see it implemented and you do a demo, it's, it's easy, but then you're going to an industry where I could see some people are, you know, you're talking about the people who just kind of know instinctively what to order, how much to order, and that's why it works. And so getting people to adopt a new technology that you obviously feel confident they'll love once they start using it, but getting them to adopt that and then also like training them to use it the right way so it's effective. And I just wondering like how you approach that when you're talking to these businesses. Yeah, maybe I'll take on the adoption and Kirsten could take on the training. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, so uh, from an adoption standpoint, you're completely right. Well, A, we're already working kind of, you know, already trying to push something uphill in the sense that this industry has been sold, you know, as we mentioned prior, like just every piece of terrible technology, you know, and, and solutions that just don't actually work. And so there's already this aversion to like, uh, uh, you know, to assessing new technology uh, as well. And then, and then if we're taking kind of the restaurant persona, there's always there's always this sense of urgency because there's, you know, there's like three fires a day, hopefully for them to put out breakfast, lunch and, and, and dinner service. And if they're, they're, they're always just kind of on this high pace, high cadence of, of kind of running from one thing to the next. And so hard to even get them to take a moment out of their daily workflows and their daily processes to like come evaluate something that in their mind may or may not provide them value. Um, so to get over that, uh, A, you really have to understand this industry. You really have to you know have a deep understanding of hospitality and food service and know how to speak to these customers and know what their pains are and and like authentically and so 
that's why our team is composed of not just foodies, but culinarians and, and, you know, chefs and nutritionalists and, you know, uh, uh, folks that have worked in kind of all aspects of the food system, um, in, in order to be more relevant, to understand the pain that, that our customers are, are dealing with. And then second, it's, you know, it's how does the product support that adoption? So it's got to be a beautiful, easy to use intuitive tool that makes sense when you just look at it. And so we, you know, like you said, Jeff, I mean, we can win customers away from incumbents and other tools by just showing them a screenshot because what we built is so categorically different um at least visually uh when you when you just interact with it and so that alone just kind of a breath of fresh air for folks that in this industry have either had to have like a computer science degree or had to play with you know something that looks like spreadsheets on steroids you know and they they don't want to interact with it and most of that technology just gets brought in by an accounting arm of, of the food business and it gets shelved because the culinarians the folks that actually have the data and need to interact with it daily don't enjoy using it um so so we focused on usability as a way to smooth over that adoption and then we did really cool things in the product to make the the uploading and streamlining of getting that data into the product more efficient and i can let kirsten take a little bit talk a little bit of that that was her bread and butter for for years <laughs> yeah yeah so in terms of the like data migration right uh our tools have improved a lot over the last year or so, uh, or last two years. We've got now the ability to, so if, if a food service operator, they did have their recipes already written out in Google Docs or something like that, one of the really cool tools that's come out um, is a, uh, it's, we call it the bulk uploader, and you copy all of that data into, so it's just a recipe written out, right? You copy that into a text field in Galley, and then that parses the ingredient out, the uh, quantity, the unit of measurement, um, and it's a really quick way to get a recipe into the system. And then, you know, something that we were running into early on uh, in the product when I joined the team was like back in 2018 was, um, duplicate ingredients, right? So Galley's deduplicating ingredients. It's it's if you type in yellow onion, but you had onion comma yellow in the system before, uh, it lets you know, you know, did you mean this ingredient? So uh, there's there's been a lot of work that's gone into making it a very easy system for people to implement. Um, and then alongside that, there's the training, and we've put a lot of work into our onboarding process. I think that's a, a differentiator for Galley. So uh, we don't just sign a customer and say, "All right, here, here are the keys to the car. <laughs> you know, go ahead, get started." Um, I mean, that's not even a good analogy because it's like, okay, here are the keys to this car that you've never learned how to drive before. <laughs> get started. Um, we, we've got, you know, several calls with the customer. We've got uh, a great kickoff call where we get them oriented with the system. We've got a data validation call where we make sure uh, that, and, and we do take on onboarding, you know, 50 to 100 of their recipes for them. We make sure that we've understood their recipes when our team has migrated that data into Galley for them. And then uh, from there, there's the, the training calls, so um, getting them the training they need to understand how to use the system. And we just actually this week launched our Galley Learning Center. So we used to have a link to a help center, which is a, a list of FAQs and things like that, articles. Now we've got a, a learning center where the user can enroll in a course and, you know, got mini courses, so definitely bite-sized chunks for them to, to learn about how to just, you know, at its most basic level, create a recipe, how to use things like categories in Galley. Um, so we're continuing to build out all of the, the training tools and everything, but I think we've got a, a pretty good foundation there. That's great. Yeah, I've been in charge of implementing, like buying and implementing software at other positions. So. I can imagine the struggle, especially with uh, an industry that might be somewhat resistant to even taking on like new technology in general and then and learning it and using it the right way. So uh, it seems like you guys have 
reacted and adapted that really quickly and thought through about how to give people the best user experience and really support Galley's mission and purpose of like changing the industry. And Kirsten is not bragging enough because her process takes a matter of days to weeks, not months to years, like a lot of the incumbents uh, in the space as well. So this is like what she outlined sounds like, oh, it was really involved, but it's actually a matter of days to weeks for even some of the largest food businesses that we have on the platform of, of them uh, getting all of their data in and, and being acclimated and, and ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, what we see is that, um, you know, the food service operators who are buying our product, they're they're excited about it. So, you know, even if it's three calls, sometimes we can fit those three calls in in a week because they're really excited to get up and running. I love that. That's so good to hear. And with Galley and something I've been thinking, I, I would consider myself a foodie, but probably not to the level that you guys are. And I, but I love going out to eat. I order way too much food. And obviously the industry has changed a lot. And so I was wondering, and I'm talking about COVID, but <laughs> with when Galley launched and when COVID started impacting the restaurant industry, did you, like what trends did you notice between um, people who were already using Galley and people who were interested in adapting um, the Galley technology to, to optimize their services? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. We saw a couple things happen. Uh, first and foremost, we saw a whole new, we saw a surge in kind of a market that we were already focused on, which is what we call kind of direct consumer food, which incorporates this ghost and virtual kitchen movement. I don't know if you guys are familiar, it's restaurants that don't have a customer facing, you know, uh, brick and mortar presence. They're, they're typically delivery only. Um, and so that trend, you know, had been around for years and years, you know, uh, and, and, you know, we just saw COVID completely accelerate that trend and it is continuing to, I think, tw uh, uh Euromonitor put out a study that said that space alone would be a trillion dollar business by, by 2030, uh, given the impacts that COVID has had on it. So massive, massive growth in that segment. Um, and, and honestly, uh, that's what we saw in the beginning. And then now over the last few you know, weeks, and I'd say about 45 days, we've seen almost you know, every other kind of sub-segment in food service. Uh, latch onto this idea of adopting technology to um, to both facilitate their hyper growth that they've experienced because they were already oriented for direct consumer or multi-channel, um, or they uh, were not and they need to pivot, adopt, and and, and adapt. I should say uh, to new opportunities and new revenue streams. And again, they don't have the kind of the elasticity or the, 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 you know, the flexibility that they need in order to do that. And their technology is, is a limiting factor there. So they're looking at new retooling kind of in this downturn in order to take advantage of different opportunities. Whereas you have the other folks that are, don't have the infrastructure to, to, to scale to the opportunities. So, now we're not just seeing SMBs and mid-market, but we're seeing enterprise like massive food businesses really take time to consider their technology infrastructure and, and how they want to leverage technology in the future, which is, has been, been really cool to see. Um, and then, you know, how customers that were existing on our platform started leveraging it, it was just, it, we got our stress test, you know, like essentially our idea was like, hey, we have this flexible data model that allows you to, to iterate on your menu offering, to even iterate on your business model. And so we saw customers just literally do that. We had, uh, you know, one customer specifically, Lucky Bolt comes to mind. They were, you know, on the Friday before quarantine, they were a uh, B2B company and they were you know, selling into corporate offices and providing lunchtime catering for great businesses in San Diego. They used Galley to literally over the weekend pivot to a complete uh, B2C company in which they were doing home meal delivery uh, with their own delivery force by the next like Monday or Tuesday. Like I'm talking like literally like over a weekend. And so they reformatted all their recipes for different scales. They built new recipes for different people groups. They, they had to deal with a whole new packaging, you know, uh, issue, all of these nuances of, of pivoting your entire business model. Uh, and it was done on the foundation of Galley. So we got, you know, we, and that was just one of multiple use cases where it was like, okay, we are totally stopping what we're doing and we're going to go start something completely new, you know, caterers going into ghost kitchens, you know, all just lots of different iterations, but, um, they, they used Galley and it, and it gave them that flexibility. And so they're, they're now screaming it from the mountaintops. So. Yeah. 
That is amazing. I mean, that must feel good for you. It feels good. Yeah, <laughs> the, the the CEO and owner of Lucky Bolt, literally, I became a customer through COVID and he showed up at my door, you know, because I live in his neighborhood and he was doing the delivery route for this neighborhood. And yeah, it felt really good to see him like have a surviving and now thriving business because we were able to help them. I mean, absolutely. it's 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 fantastic and incredibly rewarding. Yeah, it's interesting. And I just noticed this again, I have no experience in restaurant industry. And from a consumer standpoint, it seems that, you know, unfortunately, some obviously suffered economic damages and to the point where they had to close, but a lot have been pretty resilient and have adapted really quickly. And I think with technology and stuff like Galley and options like that, it helps them adapt to the changing economy and like day to day life that we're going through right now. And so you can go back to the, the traditional model like very quickly, but it seems that the people who are able to get things up and running online and get mobile and obviously be able to like manage your inventory and cut costs. And, you know, I know you guys are big on optimization, of course, to be able to do that ultimately is like saving these businesses and allowing them to, to thrive and grow during a time where, um, you know, a lot of people have been impacted. So it's, it's really awesome. I, yeah, completely agree. And this whole idea of this emerging market of like going full delivery only or expanding multi-channel, like that's not without its risks and costs as well. And so I think there's a lot of folks now, uh, and it was happening prior to COVID too. There was a lot of kind of this contrarian uh, view creeping up in the ghost and virtual space of like, this doesn't have the margins that it was, you know, it was anticipated or, or, or said to um, because you have to spend so much more time and money building brand awareness and marketing, you know, a business that you, you, you that didn't exist prior and now only has this one entry point to the consumer through these delivery apps, you know, and so you, you, there's a trade off there. And so there was this contrarian view of like, hey, before you go explore ghost and virtual as at that point, it was looked at like an auxiliary revenue center or auxiliary, you know, uh, component to the business. Now, it's looked at as core but the argument there was look at operational efficiency first if you don't understand your food costs if you can't optimize your menu if you can't produce food efficiently don't even think about tacking on another revenue center like go back to the basics first and foremost and and start there and so i, I still think that's kind of where the most savvy food operators are they're looking at the basics of like what is within their control today within their culinary ops that they can really you know that they can really optimize for efficiency and, and greater roi and then and then look at all these other opportunities you know that 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 are just made more accessible and more profitable through through that efficiency first i love this I love what I'm seeing is this idea of sustainability. Like galley is a sustainability tool. Many people define, they look, they might look at sustainability in that term and that phrase and define it as something that is financially long lasting and resilient mm -hmm. to change. Others may look at sustainability and say from an environmental standpoint, it has a very small impact. It might even have a positive impact on, mm -hmm. on the environment. And Another, you know, definition of sustainability is around like improving the quality of life for human beings or like allowing human beings to be fully, fully themselves. So when I think about those definitions of sustainability, Galley's ticking all those boxes for me. And it's easy to look at COVID and go, um, those that are financially resilient are the ones that survive on at the end of it. It's not just that, like to be sustainable to an event to be resilient to an event like COVID, you have to have the tools and the flexibility to be adaptable. And Galley in that way, in my mind, is revolutionizing the food service industry to go from one that is incredibly stressful, very low margin. So it's really those passionate people that will stick it out, you know, like it's, it's almost like an endurance game instead of like a thriving, you know, awesome experience. And you add galley to the mix and all of a sudden every point in the supply chain, the people, the planet and the money are all happy. It's like, it's all, it's all suits up and, and working. I mean, I guess I'm your hype man now. I, no, I, I was never... going to say, you're, you're, you're hired. <laughs> Let's do this. Like, come on. Uh... I just, well, like, and I want to hear from, from Kirsten who studied this, you know, hardcore. What is the definition of sustainability for Galley? And, and did I explain how Galley fits into this, to the sustainability for the food service industry? Well, or how would you add or build upon that? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so actually, I've got a post-it note here, and I wrote down this definition because I, I thought that you might ask me for my definition. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, studying this, uh, you know, thinking about it for for three years when I was working on my PhD, there was one definition that I came across that I thought really captured it, um, and it's. Uh, a sustainable business model. It's a business model that creates, delivers, and captures value for all of its stakeholders without depleting the natural uh, economic and social capital that it relies on. Um, and I think that that definition puts it very well. Um, and I've never heard that, by the way. Whoa, yeah, for the win. You got, you got the sustainable. Okay, well, it's not mine, and, and I also did write down the authors here. So it's Brewer and Ludecky Friend in 2014, a paper they wrote. Um, but I just thought, yeah, that, that does a, a really good job um, at nailing it. And, yeah, so you want to create a business. You want to start a business that's creating that value, not just creating it, delivering it to the stakeholders. Um, and capturing value, not just for your, yourself as a business, but for all of those stakeholders as well, right? Um, you want to be creating these positive value exchanges. Um, and at the same time, you don't want to be, uh, you know, taking more than you're giving. So um, yeah, I, I see a lot of that in Galley. <laughs> I, I did. I mean, that ma that makes our heart sing at Co because we are stakeholder capitalists. That's the movement that we promulgate business for good stakeholder capitalism. For those that haven't been listening to our podcast and aren't aware, what would you define a stakeholder before we move on to, to more definition around sustainability? What's a stakeholder to you? To me, uh, a stakeholder is anyone who has an interest in the business and we can I, I mean, we think about stakeholders really broadly. So uh, there's a tool that I worked a lot with um, to collect data, to facilitate workshops uh, during my time at, at Cambridge working on the PhD. Um, and it's called the value mapping tool. And in this tool, you've got stakeholder categories like, you know, your employees, your customers, um, investors, your suppliers, your partners. Uh, but you've also got stakeholders as um, being like the environment is elevated to the level of a stakeholder, right? Society is elevated to the level of a stakeholder. So, um, yeah, we think about stakeholders really broadly, anyone who has kind of a touch point and interest in the business. And for a business like Galley, you have to think about all of your stakeholders. Otherwise, you're missing a value add. And that is good business. If you, if you just want to make a bunch of profit, that is good business is to think about all your stakeholders. If you're missing a value add to any point in the chain, then you're missing out on that opportunity for your business itself. And I, I think that when people discuss stakeholder capitalism in the news, sometimes they're like, oh, it's this hippy dippy democratic, um, super wonky thing. These businesses, they're not going to make any money. Uh, they're, they're sacrificing profit and giving it to everybody else. And it's like, well, how would you defend that argument? Is Galley a profitable business? No, we're venture back right now. So we're, we're not profitable yet, but we will be. Okay. Well, I mean, well, if they're venture back, yeah, that means that they see that there's going to be profit. Yeah. We're also not building an infinitely venture back business. We are, we're designed our business model to achieve, achieve profitability. So we're, we're not, we're, we're not a bottomless pit <laughs> financing. And you know what B lab says, no margin, no mission. So you have to be a profitable business to be a business for good. And to that end, you know, what does sustainability look like to Galley? Um, is it corporate social responsibility? Is it B Corp certification? Is it tracking how much waste is reduced? What does that look like to you guys? Yeah, we've, you know, as far as uh, we didn't feel like it was fundamentally necessary to be identified as a B Corp or, or, or to, you know, really adopt that, that framework. A, it's, it makes kind of our, our, 
we are way more successful in our sustainability mission at scale. And so we felt like there might even be some hindrances to us, like being able to grow rapidly adopting a B Corp. We felt like actually because venture can really accelerate the growth of a business. And we identified that and it's actually, uh, which is really, there's a lot of, di there's been a few disappointing threads that you've teased out over the last minute here. I'll try on back. One is it's, it's disappointing that actually being a B Corp could hinder your investment potential from venture capitalists. So that is, you know, one reason we didn't explore it. Uh, but we also thought we could satisfy a lot of the uh, outcomes or objectives of being a B Corp without being a B Corp certified and that we could leverage, you know, the venture community and, and their investment ethos in order to accelerate that, that execution on the similar B Corp values around sustainability and, and, and returning to, you know, value to the stakeholders. So uh, we, in our specific case, we, we want to be, you know, we want to be growing quickly, not hyper growth at any cost, but we want to be growing quickly. And we also want to have massive market share because that furthers our sustainability mission. Because when we get to a certain level of density within the platform, then we start to be able to leverage our data to do a lot more like, uh, a lot more impactful, uh, uh, we get to execute on way more impactful sustainability measures at scale. So we just keep unlocking kind of sustainability initiatives as we grow and scale. Um, and B Corp was just at the time we were evaluating, just felt like it would, it would actually hold us back from, from that at some point, uh, which is sad. And then uh, earlier, you know, um, you, we were talking about, you know, this, you know, stakeholder capitalism is for good. It's like, it's sad that we even have to have this conversation. Like to me, business is the definition of a business is like a business is you are, you are providing a very specific value for a very specific group of people. And, and, and in most cases you're getting paid for it. And it's like, we don't start with this idea of providing value for someone then, then what are, what are we doing? You know, at the end of the day. So, you know, I, it's just that dichotomy is just like, Oh, it always just, puts me on my heels of like, gosh, I wish we were all just building businesses to satisfy the, the needs of, of a specific people group and, and everything would be a lot cleaner, but then we wouldn't be on fun podcasts like this talking about it. So um, <laughs> that's true. Well, I mean, I think it's the history, the history of business. It turned like in the eighties, it turned and it, it, you know, somebody grabbed this idea of must maximize profit for shareholders only at any cost. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, no, let's get back to like the, the purpose of business was to like solve, solve a problem and add value for things. people. We lost it. Go. We lost it along the way. Uh, but this movement that, that you guys inherently are a part of by the nature of being a stakeholder focused business, it's, it's coming back again. And yeah. We'll, and I also think it just doesn't need the same trappings of like, I love B Corp and I love companies that, that, that go that path. But at the end of the day, they're like, I also see it in modern entrepreneurship of like there is a resurgence of going back to like build products and services and businesses that solve, you know, very intrinsic and very specific and contextual pain points, you know, like that's what I see in kind of the, the modern entrepreneurial movement today. And um, so that, that's encouraging because I, I, I think that does exist on some level today. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, there's there's we, we don't have enough time to <laughs> go down this rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and Kirsten, well, Ian, you mentioned that like, as you scale, you get to unlock the potential of your sustainability strategies. I, you're the first to say this on yep. the podcast. That's a fascinating, new, refreshing mm. point of view. So, so can you share a few of those ideas that you have of some things you want to unlock as you grow? Yeah, I mean, just as it's hyper contextual to our platform, but it's like economies of scale unlock different opportunities for us. So when we have, you know, a high level of users on the platform and a, and a really, you know, uh, uh, incredible density of users, we can start doing things like creating faux purchasing blocks and kind of digital co-ops. So not only can Galley users leverage the platform to purchase, you know, their goods from external vendors, they can start thinking about, you know, the movement of goods intra Galley users. So within within Galley users, so we can start bothering, you know, when I've over purchased a case of tomatoes, and it's going to spoil in my walk in, I can get a notification from, you know, the, the taco stand on the corner saying that they were about to submit a purchase order for a case of tomatoes. And it's that I can walk it down the street, 
save 50% of the cost that I was going to, you know, see spoil on that, uh, or, or be wasted and, and also have a cool social interaction and, and provide some social benefit as well. Uh, and that's just one small little nuance thing, you know, but it's an example of like how that's economies of, of scale. Yeah. I mean, you could get into purchasing blocks and understand this. Some of these concepts exist today. It's not worth creating these. It's just, we're, we're inter interconnecting the, the, the different tooling and the data model in a way that it supports maximum efficiencies of leverage these kind of new functionality. So with purchasing blocks, it's, hey, if there's 12 of us, you know, 12 restaurants on this city block that all serve filet mignon, why aren't we all aggregating our purchasing power and getting a discount on this and increasing the efficiency within the supply chain because that supplier has less costs associated with now distributing that good to us as a purchasing block, so on and so forth. So it has multiple stakeholder values beyond just the, the, the galley user as well. But those are the types of things that can be unlocked with you know, economies of scale and, and, and growth. And this is going on the topic of food waste because I just find it really interesting. And um, there's, is Galley, are you guys leveraging, I guess, your pitch or your platform with the new law that passed in California that is, I, Laurel, you'll know this, I can't remember, but the law is like 2022 or something that food waste has to be disposed of properly. Compost, yeah. nowhere to compost it and it's this whole problem. Yeah, removing like food waste from the municipal waste stream, like uh, yeah, completely diverting it. Yep. Yeah, um, yeah. So that upcoming legislation is actually, um, it has. Uh, my understanding is that's that's part of the reason that Cal Recycle, the state recycling department, has been offering this food waste prevention and rescue grant for uh, a couple years now. Uh, part of that is you know research around how do we do this? How do we prevent food from going to landfill? And that's actually a, a project that we've been participating in for a year and a half now. We've got a project um, where we're looking at how uh, galley, when introduced in a kitchen, can really start to prevent food waste over time. Um, so yeah, my understanding, I don't, I don't know too much about the, the actual uh, policy itself, but I know that everyone's looking to really understand what food service operators should be doing, uh, what are some of the best practices, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think the reason why behind that legislation is, is mostly to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, not necessarily to improve the food system which I think, again, hype man, Galley is really an improvement in the food system and the network itself, especially when you when you get to scale and you get to add in your little trays on top of the Sunday as you grow. Um, and I, you know, we used to work in the greenhouse gas emissions analysis sector for a while. And just for listeners who, who can't put that in perspective, like California doesn't have any landfill space left. So, so to the extent that, that everyone can do their part to divert waste away from the landfill and close that loop, become regenerative, um, the better for everyone. And, and so is, is that idea of a regenerative economy or regenerative agriculture or regenerative food systems, does that idea pop up in your studies, Kirsten, and does that show up in Galley, Galley Sustainability Planning Initiatives? Um, in terms of regenerative, <clears throat> in terms of regenerative agriculture, or is that what you mean? Yeah, just the topic of regeneration, regenerative business. Is that something that's popped up in the in your studies at Cambridge? Is it something that you guys are talking about at Galley in terms of your sustainability planning, or is that kind of a new topic? Yeah, I think like regenerative agriculture, it's always it's always been on my radar. Um, just looking out for companies that are doing real, really cool things in this space. Like I know Patagonia, I know Dr. Bronner's, they're big supporters of regenerative agriculture. Um, and I think, yeah, one day we could uh, bring that into Galley, you know, in terms of, of being able to highlight which suppliers are, are you know, doing these more regenerative practices. Um, I'd agree. That example of like closing the system, like aggregating resources, sharing, oh, my tomatoes are going to be spoiled. You need tomatoes. Here have the tomatoes. That is like regenerative in itself. Cause it's uh, yeah, I, I think there's like regenerative business model practices that can be overlaid on top of food service, which is what, what you're highlighting too. And then 
Um, I, I just, when you, you talk about, A, yes, like there's such cool things happening in regenerative agriculture today, and we have actually, so what we see is like regenerative agriculture is going to interact with the food supply system as it exists today because we just see it all shrinking down. Like you're going to see more advanced regenerative agriculture just getting close to the point of like accessibility for like actual food producers, like actual restaurants. We see like, eventually a future in which like you're contracting you're growing for the season you know and and it's the folks that are focused on regenerative agriculture that are going to have a leg up and going to actually hopefully win this this fight at the end of the day um so we just see it kind of all shrinking and getting a little bit closer together and it's going to be you know the data again that drives that um that that makes that more accessible of like understanding okay what is your actual demand for asparagus next year you know given your planning and then how do you how do you plug that demand into a regenerative agriculture system how accessible is that system to you uh, as well so lots of cool advances there that are again are technology driven which is cool because it's been like food service kind of one of the last frontiers for technology to penetrate yeah thanks for sharing that I wanted I wanted to know y'all's thoughts on the future of the industry and you just nailed it so thank you. And um, yeah. I, think, I think we're at the time for our three-point landing. Woo! Ooh. So please walk us through the three key takeaways you'd like our audience to walk away with. Nice. Um, well, I'm going to throw a curveball because one just came to me uh, here. And one, it's, it's not necessarily a takeaway, but it's like uh, the thought around how data can be leveraged within food service today is both going to be critically Necess critically necessary for food service operators in order to understand the data that's driving their decisions around profitability um, and, and efficiency. But then I think we're also going to see, you know, consumers now in this in this direct consumer food world. Now they're going to want that same data to have assurances around quality and and how that food ends up on their plate. So I think it's just really cool to see how data is going to come forefront because of both of these stakeholder groups and leveraging it for, for really different ways. So um, that that I think is, is just a cool takeaway and somewhere that we're going, but that's only happening because there's ton of tons of innovation, tons of collaboration and tons of entrepreneurship in food service today. And this has been like, such an exciting time to be a part of this industry to see how people have you know really risen to the challenges of covid and banded together to address those challenges uh, as well has been really really assuring so i'll let i'll let kirsten jump in with with at least one or two more yeah i think so i think that that resilience uh that that leads to to one of the other themes we've talked about today which is embracing disruption um and you know being able to innovate your business model uh, even even when there is uh, disruption going on because you know there COVID is is one example of disruption there's tons of disruption and uh, with climate change and everything we expect that they'll there'll be more disruption especially in the food industry food and farming industry right um, so I think that's another one of our takeaways there. Awesome. Is that two or three? Because I think our last, if we're not over, uh, our, our third would just take care of each other, you know, take care of your team, take care of your people. Um, at the end of the day, <clears throat> we're all really reliant on food service and <clears throat> we all want and desire, you know, just great tasting, sustainable, you know, well-made and, and food made with love. And that comes from, we believe in just a kind of a trickle down effect of, you know, take care of your people that will take care of the food that take care of the customers. And so uh, lean in in these times to each other and, and be good to each other. Epic, beautiful note. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciated it. Um, or, go to Galley Solutions <laughs> for all you your Galley Solutions. <laughs> you got it. And, with that, send it, Jessa. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening. And visit astellar.co. That's A-S-T-E-L-L-A-R dot C-O for reference materials from the podcast and to connect with Jessa and Laurel. Foxhole Studios specializes in audio production and can work remotely to meet your audiovisual needs whether you live in San Diego or not. Getting a podcast started? Contact the team at info at foxholestudios.com for any and all inquiries.